Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to part three of my Final Destination series review. After an underwhelming part two, I was anxiously waiting to see if the third time would be the charm in delivering a quality Final Destination experience. James Wong returns to the franchise to direct Final Destination 3, and it's apparent from the opening moments that we're in far better hands this time around. While not a direct sequel, Final Destination 3 occurs within the same cinematic universe, picking up six years after the original film. Yet another teen, Wendy, this time played by Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, has a premonition that she and her friends will die in a roller coaster accident. As is a formula by this point, Wendy freaks out, gets thrown off the roller coaster along with several others, as those who stayed on board are killed in the grisly freak accident she foresaw. Though as we've learned in these films, there are severe repercussions for those who cheat death's design. Much like the two films that preceded it, James Wong knew he had to open Final Destination 3 in a big way, that being the roller coaster crash. While admittedly not nearly as hard-hitting as the previous film's highway pileup, the scene not only sports gory kills and sharp editing, but it fuels the film's emotional investment. Much like in the original with Alex, Wendy has experienced loss, and her character attempting to overcome that is what makes her so memorable and compelling. It helps that Mary Elizabeth Winstead gives the best performance I've seen so far in these films, juggling heartbreaking emotion, dedicated detective work, and scream queen caliber, well, screams. She's fantastic, and while the rest of the cast pales in comparison, they're far more memorable than the previous film's cast in its entirety. She's a character you come to care for in a way that gives this film a good amount of narrative weight that makes its kills that much more satisfying. The biggest narrative difference from the other films is that Wendy and fellow survivor Kevin have photographic evidence of death's design. Well, they sort of do. The night of the fateful roller coaster ride, Wendy was taking pictures of students. Those who survived the roller coaster are now marked for death and have strange alterations to their photos. Wendy and Kevin must attempt to decipher these ominous clues in a bid to save their lives. Naturally, they largely fail, otherwise it wouldn't be a Final Destination movie. But this added narrative deviation from the previous film kept me far more engaged than I thought it would. It really does tie into the film's knack for making the audience pick apart environmental clues that could indicate how a character will die. I will say that this doesn't always work that well, as there's this hilariously goofy scene in which Wendy digs up historical photos of Abraham Lincoln and the Twin Towers that alludes to how they will be killed or destroyed. There's also the undeniable reality that a majority of the high school students' banter is awkwardly goofy and far too horny in a way that I feel neither of the previous films had. It wasn't that overbearing, but it was eye-rolling inducing every time it occurred. One last minor narrative nitpick of mine is that I think after three films it's clear we're never going to get a proper explanation for why characters continue to receive these premonitions of their death. It'd be a narratively intriguing angle to learn why these people are special in seeing behind the curtain as it were and foiling death's plan. At least in Final Destination 2, characters had somewhat of a connection to the previous cast, but here, it's just another fresh crop of kills for the Grim Reaper. Oh, and kills there are. Final Destination 3 feels like a return to form for high-impact kills that capture the domino effect style of the original, making it impossible for the viewer to guess where the death is going to come from. There is an added brutality to kills complemented by fantastic practical effects that were more prominent than I realized. In the making of Doc of Final Destination 3, Wong said not only was this movie far more difficult than the first to make, but that it felt like one giant puzzle. The scale of action set pieces definitely reflects this compared to the original, which is why they relied heavily on storyboards for camera placement and to ensure Wong's vision came to life. 
And by this point in the series review, it's become somewhat of a tradition around here for me to rank the kills in order of uh, which main character deaths I thought were the best and the most inventive. This time I figured I'd throw in some other facts about behind the scenes stuff. First up is the roller coaster death. It's really a fantastic example that kind of calls back to the original film, where in the original, when Alex is going through the airport, he starts to notice all these little different things that are hinting that danger is near, that there's this ominous atmosphere and that he becomes very anxious. And we see that with Wendy as well. Wendy starts noticing strange things and ominous things around the fairgrounds while she's walking around, such as there's a giant devil by the roller coaster, which is actually voiced by Tony Todd, who unfortunately doesn't make a cameo in this one. Just kind of like little things like the devil says Tony Todd's line of like, I'll see you soon from the original. And then while she's taking the pictures, she kind of notices how there are these strange like blurs over certain people's faces or she sees that the word kill or dies in the background. And these small things that at the time are just kind of strange. Later in the film, during her detective work kind of with uh, Kevin, we start to realize that, oh, these are actually alluding to the ways that certain people could die. Like one of the characters who dies by getting a fan blade in the back of his head. He's taking a picture and there's like an open fan blade right behind his head. During the whole roller coaster scene, when the roller coaster's going up, the brake line breaks and it starts spraying brake fluid everywhere. And so the brakes obviously cut out. And then these little things where one of the characters drops a camera and it wraps around onto one of the roller coaster bars, which is then obviously going to help to derail the roller coaster, which would eventually lead to a lot of people dying. So for as elaborate as the roller coaster set piece is and the deaths that are involved in it, it quite a lot, not surprisingly, quite a lot of work went into it. Before actually getting to filming it, they had to plan out the entire scene by developing a low poly animation kind of to show essentially what was going to happen from and uh, present it in different camera angles, trying to line it up with kind of James Wan's vision. So this is essentially a 21st alternative or accompaniment to storyboards. So it kind of just helps all the different departments, given the larger size of the crew and whatnot, like James Wong said in the inter in the making of documentary, this kind of makes sure that everybody is on the same page in terms of the vision of how this kill and set piece is going to unfold. To make sure that the roller coaster shot was just perfect, the cast had to ride the roller coaster 26 times in the same night. I think that record was beaten every single consecutive day that they had to be there. So there was like three days, I think, in a row where the cast had to show up and do these night shots because they had to basically establish shots that were actually of them riding a roller coaster. But then later when things start to go awry and they start to become more fantastical kind of or uh, more terrifying rather, when people start falling out of the roller coaster and hanging off for your life, obviously production shifted from an actual roller coaster to a green room. And using the green room allowed them to do the kind of more death-defying stunts where actors were hanging from wires to make them show their bodies like flying out of the air, flying out of their seats, dangling upside down, holding on to the handle grips of the roller coaster and whatnot. And some of them were even wearing like green suits for some characters that get uh, ripped in half or decapitated. And this is just such a fantastic premonition death scene because it does capture the kind of larger-than-life set piece of the original film, which was a flight. And this time it makes you feel a little more grounded, a little more safe, but at the same time, it kind of captures the over-the-top spectacle of the deaths in these films. Next up is the final kill, actually, of the film, which is the subway crash. Uh, I love that we end the Final Destination 3 in a similar style to the way it begins, where we get this large set piece that is almost larger than life compared to like the very kind of isolated kills earlier in the film or earlier in the series. And it, 
for as destructive, if not more destructive, than the airplane kill in the original, you never lose sight of what's happening. The subway obviously becomes derailed. People start flying out of windows. The car gets broken in half. The car is constantly shaking. People are losing their footing. But the way that Wong approaches the action, it never comes off as being overly shaky cam in a way where the viewer loses track of what is happening. They're always, it's almost as if everything around them is chaotic, but our perspective of what's happening is very clear. And that's just something that I find is pretty rare in a lot of big action scenes like this. What's really fantastic about this ending is that it makes death menacing in a way that feels like he has a design. Unlike Final Destination 2, where the final kill was mostly just for laughs and saw the protagonist live, only to not return in the follow-up film, really felt open-ended and ultimately pretty goofy. Here, we see characters who think they've beaten death stumble into one another only to have their reunion cut short by the fantastic crash. Plus, we see the first time a character doesn't survive their premonition, as Mary sees the train crash and then cuts back to her on the train mere seconds before she dies. Despite surviving the initial crash, when you hear that second train coming, you know it's curtains for her which is a mean-spirited as hell ending, and I loved it. Then we have the tanning bed. Ashley and Ashlyn's trip ends in a fiery fashion, where this scene really does a fantastic job of capturing the kind of claustrophobic nature of tight spaces, of them getting inside of these tanning beds, and then the camera goes basically right in there with them. And it's the first kill that is very claustrophobic, and we don't get a lot of that. A lot of the time, the kills are taking place in a wide-open environment, and that almost gives a certain sense of, not comfort, but this idea that the person could potentially survive this. Whereas the tanning bed deaths, the characters literally get locked into these tanning beds, these tight spaces, and then slowly are cooked alive as the condensation from a drink sets off one of the electrical units, and then the bed's heat level gets raised and raised until the girls essentially catch on fire and burn to death in their tanning beds, which is horribly gruesome and horribly disturbing. Uh, not that I would ever be in a tanning bed, but for people that are in a tanning beds, this might make them think twice. This is, kill is also a really fantastic example of the practical effects that they used. Now, originally I assumed it was all CGI in terms of like the fire and them literally bursting into flames. But in the making of documentary, they show that they developed a special type of gel that they would put on the stunt people. And that gel would allow them to light a fire and have that fire burn on clothing or skin for up to 25 seconds without burning the stunt person, obviously. And little touches like that really go a long way in making the scene an accompaniment to the fantastic practical effects. They have this horrific burn makeup that the girls are wearing. The whole package together just makes for a very convincing kill in a way that kind of just shows that as these films progress, so does the technical aspects of perfecting each and every kill. Now, Final Destination 2 left me a little sore about the lack of kind of elaborate kills in terms of these large set pieces with lots of fake outs and the very domino effect nature that I've referenced that of the kills that I really, really love. Getting to pick apart the environment, finding, oh, this is going to kickstart that, that's going to kickstart this, and this is how the person's going to die in this way that you could start to see sort of the framework behind, but then at the last minute, something shocking happens that kind of completely catches you off guard. The home improvement kill, I think, is a really strong example of that in Final Destination 3. It's an incredibly elaborate setup, similar to the kills from the original, where we can't see it coming. Obviously, we're in a Home Depot, essentially, even though it wasn't really a Home Depot. Uh, the scene was, however, shot in a real home improvement store, but the crew can only film there at night. And as a result, they had to make sure that everything was put back in its place. So during shooting, half of the crew would be 
setting up the next shot and making sure that you couldn't see any of the brand names of any appliances or any banners or anything because companies don't want to be associated their products with a teen slasher movie, essentially. Like, oh, I can't buy that product because that's associated with teens dying, essentially. So it kind of just shows the dedication into making this product as good of a sequel as it could be in that it wasn't in a set that you only half believe is a Home Depot. It literally looks like a Home Depot, even though it isn't. And again, it shows the dedication that the crew had to make sure every single thing they moved or turned was turned and moved back before the store opened the following day. And this is just such a fun sort of hostile environment for a kill to unfold in. I mean, you have all of these different implements and hardware tools that could be used to maim or mutilate characters and trying to guess which one is going to strike first or be the one that ends up being delivering the final blow was a layer of tension that I don't think we saw in necessarily every single kill, but we saw them in a good amount. And it kind of harkens back to the tone and dedication of the original one, which James Wong, I think, replicates really, really well here. And what I really love about that scene is that we assume one character is the target, when in actuality, it's another character who we don't see a lot of during that scene. I think this is a really great fake out because it makes the final kill come out of left field, but it also makes it that much more shocking because, again... This character is a majority of the scene is out of harm's way talking to a character who we're very much convinced is the target and they almost die themselves. So when the actual character that was the real target dies, it's that much more shocking and it's that much more effective. And I mean, it's got some fantastic practical effect gore, which was really impressive. And again, a fantastic example of the practical effects and puppetry and animatronics that they use to really sell you on these kills in a way that doesn't come off as being like hokey or unbelievable CGI. Next up is the most aggro of all the kills. It's the Jim head crush kill. For starters, the character who dies' real name is Texas Battle, which is a pretty fucking rad name. Uh, <laughs> but secondly, his locker room death scene did a great job of presenting its setting as chaotic and very much a sensory overload. Mary especially does a fantastic job at reacting to every single grunt, slam, and scream from the meatheads during their lifts. That actually makes it so the viewer loses a sense of just what is happening in the scene in relation to Texas, who is the target of the kill. There's also a solid fake out with the hanging swords, though his death is actually caused by weight machine cables being severed by the swords, and the weights make his head explode like a cantaloupe. Mary and Kevin are trying to instill upon Texas that, hey, you're next on the list, and of course, him being the aggro meathead he is, he doesn't believe them. And so while he is progressively starting to slam weights more and more, you assume that the swords that are hanging above the machine he's using are going to swing loose and sever his head. But even this is a great fake out because while the swords do fall and they do come close to him, they don't sever his head. What they do instead is they sever the cables on the machine he's working out with. So the next time he slams it, the weights fall free and smash his head like a cantaloupe, sending all sorts of gooey brain matter on top of uh, Mary and Kevin. But it really is Mary again, who can't give her enough compliments for this movie, is that she really sells the scene in a way that I don't think any other actress in the film has, has previously, in that her scream just is like bone chilling. And you can feel her character's charge and energy and strength in it. And it really complements every single kill that she's on uh, site for. Now, the drive-through kill is one of my least favorite kills, but at the same time, it speaks to the dedication of the FX team and Wong's direction. In that it's a pretty standard kill, but it's more about what went into making it all kind of pop that gives you a greater appreciation for what this film achieves that I don't think Final Destination 2 achieved nearly as well. So while Mary and Kevin are in the drive-through line at a fast food restaurant, their cars essentially get boxed in, and then they see in the rearview mirror that there's a moving truck 
at the hill behind them that's basically lost control and it's slamming down the hill towards them. And they're worried it's going to ram them and kill them and they'll be the next ones to die. What we see is, is that they're able to kick out a window, jump out before the truck hits them, but it does hit the car behind them, which sends the car engine shooting into the car ahead of them, which kills the driver by impaling them with or a fan blade from the engine. Super graphic, super gory. Another example of them using practical effects that are really sickening and brain matter and all this that's sprayed everywhere really makes it a gruesome kill. But it's more about the behind the scenes things that kind of gave me more of an appreciation for it that really speaks to the technical aspects of every kill, no matter whether it was my favorite or one of my lesser favorites. So to really get this shot to look 100% realistic, they had to do three separate shots to make this work. The first shot was just the engine flying out of the car. Nobody is in the car ahead of them, obviously, because they did another shot of the actor doing the motion of being hit by it with a green screen behind him. And then they did a third one, which was of a squib head exploding. And a squib head is just the mold of somebody's head that resembles the actor. And then it has a little explosive charge in it that makes it look like their head's exploding and sprays blood and goopy stuff. And so then they string all three of those shots together so it actually looks like the actor's getting hit and the back of his head is exploding and all of these different things that really bring this to life and make it memorable, even if it's not one of my favorites, because the architecture of the kill is kind of simplistic and not nearly as creative as some of the others. And the fun fact for that scene is that one of the trucks that blocks Mary and Kevin in is the Hick Pale Ale truck that was in Final Destination 2 from the highway pileup scene, which I thought was kind of a cool nod to the film that preceded it. And my least favorite kill has to be the kill of the cherry picker crushing one of the characters at the end of the bicentennial celebration scene when they're all at the festivity at night and the fireworks are going off. Fireworks hit the cherry picker, short circuits, and it just kind of falls on top of the guy and splatters him and they get sprayed once again with one of their fellow classmates' blood. I didn't think much of this kill. It's kind of sudden. And in the making of, I had learned, which was, I'm very glad this didn't end up being the case, this was how the film was originally supposed to end. We weren't originally supposed to get the subway kill, which I love and is fantastic. And this was supposed to be the final kill, but they found out that after the first test screening, audiences weren't having it because this kill, it kind of, again, is open-ended in the three leads that survive. They just walk off into the sunset, essentially, in the credits roll, which is not a satisfying ending for any horror movie because that's kind of what people assume horror movies are going to end like. And especially for these films, there's no guarantee any of these characters are going to come back, which again is often a case of a lot of horror films. It did feel similar to the previous film in that the kill was mostly created for laughs. Oh, that character's a dickhead. Watch him get crushed. It's kind of like the Carter kill at the end of the original Final Destination. A majority of that was constructed around a laugh. So I'm really glad that they didn't end it with the cherry picker kill. And instead, we got that subway crash, which is really masterful in just all of its creation, how it's got this very mean-spirited kind of ending, like nobody escapes death. And in the end, it really speaks to the longevity and the kind of legacy of Final Destination 3 in that if this happens to be James Wong's final Final Destination, he ends it in a very satisfying way that feels indicative of his dedication to the Final Destination franchise. Final Destination 3 was a major improvement over Final Destination 2, and it's absolutely due to the winning combination of the devilish James Wong's return and the emotionally charged of Mary Elizabeth Weinstead's performance. Kills are as brutal and elaborate as ever, with consistent deaths throughout. 
rather than blowing its load early on. The cherry on top being its oh-so-mean-spirited ending that reinforces that death really will not be cheated. I really enjoyed this one a lot, in spite of the somewhat uneven narrative elements. Hopefully something part 4 will work to amend. Also, no Tony Todd cameo was a bummer, but I have a feeling it isn't the last of Bloodworth we'll see. And that'll do it for another episode of Daily Horror Habit. I'll see you guys soon for another horror movie review. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service. And follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.